0: Hi, and welcome to Green Deal Big Deal, the podcast where we discuss Europe's green future. My name is Ewa Iwaszuk.
1: And I'm Aaron Best. We're pleased to join you today from the offices of Ecologic Institute in Berlin.
0: In this podcast series, we explore the ins and outs of the European Green Deal, the EU's flagship environmental initiative. As part of the European Green Deal, the EU is pursuing its Zero Pollution Action Plan, which aims to reduce air, water, and soil pollution to levels that are considered no longer harmful to health and natural ecosystems by 2050.
1: And in today's episode, we focus on an important type of pollution that Europe has been battling for decades – air pollution. It's been a long-standing issue in Europe and remains a serious problem today.
0: It is, however, one environmental policy area where there have been some major successes. The countries of Europe first systematically addressed acid rain starting in the 1970s and 80s, and through this effort, they made substantial progress in reducing air pollution levels. So overall, the air we breathe today is cleaner than it used to be. However, even now, air pollution is one of the greatest environmental risks to our health, with nearly 300,000 Europeans dying prematurely every year due to air pollution.
1: In October 2022, The European Commission proposed a revision of the ambient air quality directives to get the EU on track to meet its 2030 air pollution targets and achieve its ambitions for 2050. Today we have two guests with us to help us better understand the problems of air pollution and the European Commission's policy proposals to address these problems. One is Margarita Toloto, Senior Policy Officer for Air and Noise at the European Environmental Bureau, her other guest is Agnieszka Warsaw buchanan Senior Lawyer and Client Earth, previously Clean Air Lead for Poland and Central and Eastern Europe. Margarita and Agnieszka, welcome to Green Deal, Big Deal.
2: Thank you for the invitation. Really happy to be here and to share some insights on the topic.
1: So, uh, Margarita, my first question is for you. Could you help us understand how bad is the air pollution problem in Europe today? And is poor air quality something that affects most Europeans today or only people in certain countries or urban areas, for example?
2: Air pollution is a very democratic issue. Everybody is affected by air pollution. There is no way in escaping air pollution. Everybody needs to breathe and everybody is exposed to it. And there has been some good progress made in Europe uh, in the last decades. And it was also highlighted by uh, the introduction, with some specific pollutants, especially being reduced quite a lot. Still, at the moment, the latest number we have, and we can check, produced by the European Environment Agency, are saying that in the EU in 2020, the 95% of the population living in urban areas was exposed to fine particulate matter levels that were above the latest scientific recommendations. And those recommendations are produced by the WHO, the World Health Organization, a very, very important institution, and therefore we should all be paying attention to those numbers.
0: Agnieszka, could you tell us what are the main sources of air pollution that are affecting Europeans today?
3: This depends on the region in European Union, but there are two main sources of air pollution that are of the most concern. It is domestic heating, burning coal and wood to heat houses and transport. This is particularly visible when analysing European Environmental Agency reports and their maps showing the concentration of pollutants such as particulate matter, nitro dioxide and benzo alpha Central and Eastern Europe Poland and Bulgaria and also North Italy reported the highest concentration of particular matter and benzapirin. And for example, in Poland, domestic heating is a source of 78% of PM2.5, 65% of PM10 and almost 10% of carbon dioxide.
0: I know that from the 300,000 premature deaths in Europe, 50,000 are estimated to be in Poland. So it's interesting to understand also those differences. Margarita, I wanted to ask you, what do we know about the costs of air pollution in both monetary and also other terms? And maybe you could also tell us how are those costs distributed? So who is most impacted when the air quality is poor?
2: The proposal that the Commission has put forward in October is also accompanied by a study, which is providing numbers for understanding why the Commission has proposed certain things in the text. The study is called Impact Assessment, and it's providing also useful data on the costs of air pollution that have been analysed to produce it. So this official document says that air pollution in terms of health impacts is costing Europe between... 231 to 853 billion of euros, and it's just the health costs. Then we have a series of additional costs that are indicated there. 8 billion in lost working days, 4 to 12 billion in ecosystems damage. Then there is another chunk of 10, 11 billion in crop yield loss, 19 billion in forest damage and 1 billion in buildings damage. What we need to keep in mind when looking at these numbers is that the European Commission analysis is always conservative. So the numbers we see here are most likely to be higher than than what we have just mentioned. We can assume that the distribution of those costs are very horizontal. As we said before, everybody is exposed to air pollution, so everybody is actually suffering the consequences of its impact. What is important to highlight is that while everybody is exposed to air pollution, not everybody is suffering in the same way. There are some vulnerable groups that are exposed to air pollution and are suffering more than what could be the case for a healthy young woman or man in Europe. And I'm referring especially to pregnant women, to newborn babies, to old and aged population, or those who are already affected by previous health issues. So adding on top, The consequences of being exposed to air pollution. As I mentioned before, there is really no way to escape air pollution. Numbers are especially referring to concentrations and obviously urban settings, but also people living in rural areas are very much exposed to air pollution. One of the major sources there being agriculture, and still very much disregarded in terms of legal obligation for reduction in Europe.
1: You mentioned earlier that the EU is falling short of scientific standards for air pollution, especially particulate matter. And the EU is trying to address this now. Just a few months ago in October 2022, the EU proposed stronger rules on air pollutants as part of the European Green Deal. Can you walk us through the proposed changes to the EU's ambient air quality rules? Just give us a broad overview.
2: There are a few aspects that we are analyzing to understand the proportion of the changes that the commission is suggesting and how much we should actually as civil society pushing forward in order to go beyond what the commission has has suggested. We are not happy with the commission decision to just go for a closer alignment with WHO guidelines levels by 2030. Civil society is asking for full alignment with WHO guidelines level by 2030, so to make sure that By the year 2030, we are breathing the air that is suggested by science, assuming that and keeping in mind that there is no safe level of air pollution. So even if by 2030 we achieve WHO suggested air quality standards, we are still not sure that we are not suffering health consequences. So it's really important to make sure that the level of ambition is kept very high. Another focus for the debate that is ongoing among the EU institutions is the type of standards. So what are the standards that we think will serve the purpose of reducing air pollution at its best? And obviously, limit values are the key tool to use. Limit values are in place at the moment with the existing legislation, and they have proven to be very effective in pushing for action to reduce air pollution, and especially they have proven effective to be used in courts, demonstrate when an authority was breaching the legislation, therefore not respecting the air quality levels that they were asked to, to achieve. Another focus that we are having in the debate is the consideration of the role that air quality plans have to play. Just to give you a bit of a background, basically air quality plans are the instruments that nowadays have to be put in place in order to secure that air quality legislation is respected. And they are identifying measures that need to be implemented to reduce air pollution concentrations in the air. What we want to see in the new proposal, in the new legislation, is to have rules for air quality plans that are stricter in terms of delivery. So, can we please make sure that we take action before the breach is in place? This is key, and this is really uh, the priority. Once, unfortunately, the legislation is breached, we need to make sure we have the right instruments to make sure that the people affected by the damages caused by air pollution can go to court and ask for their right to breathe clean air to be respected. This is still not the case in many countries. And I mean, we have colleagues also here in Nesca that is experiencing directly this in her own country. So it's really an important priority to make sure that once the breach is there, we have the instrument to act.
1: Agnieszka, Margarita walked us through some of the broad outlines there and, and important issues. Maybe could you give us an insight into some of the concrete measures involved uh, that could improve the air pollution situation in Europe?
3: My short answer would be phasing out solid fuels, coal and wood from heating systems and energy production, which will also have a significant and positive impact on reduction of CO2 emissions. And of course, limit the use of diesel and petrol in transport. What is important is also to support and develop renewables. I think important part of this process would be decarbonisation of buildings, meaning the renovation of homes, schools, hospitals and buildings to reduce greenhouses emissions and energy bills, which will also have an impact on improving air quality. This action will happen mostly at the cities and uh, regional levels and hopefully will lead to redesign of our cities with more investment in clean zero emission public transport, the limited use of individual cars powered by fossil fuels, introduction of low emission zones and development of better infrastructure for bicycle and pedestrians. Obviously, we should not forget about energy efficiency how we can save energy, not to use more, even if in a sustainable way. And I would highlight that Green Deal provide a framework for these specific measures to be implemented.
1: So, uh, Margarita, back to you. I think it would be good to get some insight into what the potential impacts might be if this passes. So, let's say it goes into effect, the current proposal... You know, How much will premature deaths be reduced? What other relevant metrics might we be measuring and considering here?
2: If the commission proposal passes as it is, the commission has announced that it will deliver a reduction of minus 55% premature deaths by 2030 compared to 2005 levels. It's a good number in the sense that obviously any premature death we can prevent, it's a positive development, but still we need to be moving much, much faster than this. Air pollution is an issue in Europe that we have experienced since a while. And we do have the solutions as Anessa has also just explained. We know what we need to do. We know what we need to be coherent about. We know that we cannot escape the energy crisis by, for example, pushing for biomass burning, which is one of the main contributors to particulate matter concentrations in Europe. The expectations are high in terms of what civil society would like to see happening. We would like to see the proposal being made much better, and we are counting a lot on the European Parliament to propose very good amendments in order to take us beyond what the Commission has announced in its analysis and to have a further reduction of premature deaths. But to also further protect our ecosystems and our environment in general. Nature doesn't have a voice in the debate, nature cannot speak directly, we can and we have to do it also having in mind that we are civil society, is the actor that is supposed to defend and protect those that cannot speak in the debate. We are very closely working with health experts as well in this phase, To make sure that scientific evidence is taking the space it deserves in the debate, we need to have decisions that are not just based on political will. We need to have decisions that are based on science and on what we need to do to defend and protect ourselves and and the environment. So we do expect the final agreement to go much beyond what the Commission has proposed to finally deliver an instrument which is coherently approaching the issue and delivering by 2030 that we are suggested by WHO would be
0: safe enough to breathe. Agnieszka, something that Margreita has touched upon is the importance of access to justice or the fact that people can go to court where the legislation is breached. And this is something I would like to dive deeper into. So first of all, you work for client Earth until recently you were the lead of the Clean Air Programme for Poland and Central and Eastern Europe. And in this role, you used something that is called strategic litigation to enforce compliance with EU air quality standards. Could you explain to our listeners what strategic litigation actually is?
3: Simply, strategic litigation is a legal action of a systemic nature, which involves conducting of court proceedings in the public interest. The aim is to change the law or the practice of the law. Sometimes strategic litigation is also called impact litigation, involves selecting and bringing case to the courtroom with the goal of creating broader changes in societies and systemic change.
0: And to help us understand this concept a little bit better, could you actually walk us through a recent air quality case that you have worked on and what you were able to achieve in that case?
3: Since you are recording from Berlin, I thought that a good example of a strategic litigation is a joint legal action of DUH and Client Earth, which resulted in a decision by German Supreme Court in 2018, in which the court confirmed that restrictions such as diesel bans are permissible in German cities in order to improve air quality. So it is in compliance with the law. But I would like to tell you now about Polish cases. We had few cases which led us to the European Court of Human Rights, where in December last year, together with Warsaw Grassroot Association, Miasto jest nasze and individuals, Warsaw citizens, we submitted a four cases for breaches of European Convention on Human Rights. It started when we reviewed air quality plan for Mazowsha region, which is a central Poland where Warsaw is situated. Air quality plan is a main legally binding document prepared by the regional government in order to improve air quality. As was mentioned before, and it's, it's a key document under the Air Quality Directive that is there to enforce standards of air quality. It should, exactly according to air quality law, include effective measures to tackle air pollution, in our case in Poland from domestic heating and transport, what is important in the shortest possible time. According to our assessment it didn't. So firstly in September 2021 we submitted complaints for judicial review of the plan to the Regional Administrative Court in Warsaw. Although we are sure that we have right to breathe clean air, the quality of air that at least fulfills legal standards. After the appeal, the Administrative Supreme Court of Poland dismissed our complaints on formal grounds, refusing to grant legal standing to individuals and NGOs, and not conducting the main task, the judicial revision of the measures included in air quality plan. What is more, the court stated that neither individuals nor NGOs have a legal interest in appealing air quality plan, and air quality plan itself cannot breach their interest, completely ignoring the right to health, freedom or privacy. In our opinion, this interpretation is not in line with EU case law, pro-European interpretation of national law, and is also against the rules of Aarhus Convention. Since there is no further domestic remedies to pursue a judicial review of air quality plans and effectiveness of measures to improve air quality, we decided to submit application to the European Court of Human Rights. The complaints are based on violation of three articles of the convention. The first one is article 6 guaranteeing the right to fair trial, article 13 on the right to effective remedy, and article 8 guaranteeing the right to respect for private and family life in the context of right to clean and healthy air. So you may ask What is our goal? What systemic change we want to achieve? Well, firstly, as has been already said during our discussion, air pollution creates a risk to health and affects private and family life of individuals. To establish a human right to clean and healthier, that's one of our goals. Especially in the context of everyday city life. So not related directly to, for example, industrial emissions. We had few cases like that in Strasbourg already. Here we are discussing the life in the city and citizens that are being affected by a level of pollutions that do not fulfil legally binding standards. Secondly, we would like to hold Polish authorities accountable for breaches of air quality laws with the aim to finally introduce effective measures, the measures that we discussed before uh, a phase-out coal and other solid fuels from domestic heating and ensure support for decarbonisation of buildings. And thirdly, address access to justice in air quality cases and open doors for individuals and NGOs for judicial review of air quality plan and effectiveness of measures and push for needed changes in national legislation. So something that
0: you have touched upon is the fact that in the Polish case that you have described, the access to justice was limited because the case was rejected on formal ground. So the courts would say, your rights have not been affected in our opinion. And the proposal from the European Commission that has been put forward actually promises to improve this access to justice to citizens affected by poor air quality Could you tell us more about the proposed changes in existing legislation and whether you think that they are a step in a good direction and might make such cases a bit more common or easier to fight for in the court?
3: Uh, Yes, definitely. I think Margarita would agree with me that the proposal of the Commission to include a specific provision granting access to justice for individual and, of individuals and NGOs is a good step in the right direction. This is actually a confirmation of the existing case law of the Court of Justice of European Union because we did have a few cases already decided a few years ago. One, a very famous Janicek case and a second one, Client Earth case from UK where the court already said that both individuals and NGOs do have a right, but it seems like the implementation of a case law is not that easy in few member states. Poland, unfortunately, and Bulgaria are one of the member states that do not implement the case law as quickly as we would expect. So yes, definitely, the proposal is very good. And we may hope that it will be upheld in a final version and finally individuals and NGOs will have a clear access to justice to ask for judicial review of the existing air quality plans, for example, which is crucial to actually have an impact on the actions taken by the local governments or, or governments to improve air quality, which is their duty under the existing law.
0: Okay. And just to wrap up this topic, beyond taking the government to court and using organizations such as yours under the existing regulations, when the member state is not complying with the rules, what else can be done? So how can those rules be enforced? Is the legal road the only road or are there are any other
3: paths? My direct thought would be the infringement procedure, but that's the procedure that needs to be started by the European Commission, and we have many examples even related to the cases we were discussing with regards to access to justice in air quality matters where the Commission is starting the infringement procedure under Article 258 or 260, and is actually taking member state eventually to the court of justice. Right now, there is an ongoing procedure against Poland and Bulgaria in, exactly in relation to breaches of the EU law with regards to access to justice in air quality matters. There were many cases for breaches of air quality directive against many member states for not improving air quality as quickly as possible to fulfil the existing standards.
1: So the EU's uh, proposed changes to its ambient air quality rules are still being discussed, as you know, and I thought it would be nice to finish our discussion with a bit of an outlook. So starting with you, Margarita, where do you see the main political debate taking place in the months to come?
2: We can answer probably in two ways. If we consider the institution where the most interesting political debate or the most worrying political debate will take place, we can surely Indicate the Council where Member States are at this moment studying the directive and they will be discussing what their positions are on all the articles that have been presented by the European Commission. We do expect some resistances, especially on the topics related to what Agnieszka has just shared with us in relation to access to justice, penalties, and compensation regimes, where they will most probably put all their political weight to make sure that the directive does not clearly set immediate consequences when legislation is breached. We do expect a lot of efforts to be put on this by Member States. Unfortunately, it's not the best way to serve public interest, which is one of the priorities that Member States sitting in the Council should have also in this debate. We do expect to see, as Agnieszka said, a legislative instrument which is indeed helping us to solve the issue of air pollution and not creating additional loopholes regarding possible ways in which the air pollution issue can be solved. In terms of additional irrelevant political debates, obviously, there is also the European Parliament, which is playing a key role as civil society, to be honest, historically, but also in this debate, we are counting much more on what the European Parliament can do to ameliorate the proposal and to make it a stronger to deliver air quality for the coming years. Members of the European Parliament are also at the end of their term because there will be a European election in May 2024, which makes it an important timing for civil society to really check on what their MEPs are doing. We do expect the debate to be quite hot and will be a short debate because there will be a first discussion already in September. The Rapporteur has already published its report suggesting the modification we would like to see in the proposal, and the Environment Committee of the European Parliament is expected to deliver its amendment by the 29th of March. So deadlines are really short. The work is advancing in a very, very fast way. The debate is very quick. And we do suggest all civil society representatives from Europe, but also the general public, to get active, to get in touch with their MEPs, to be demanding action and further ambition regarding this file. It's really important.
1: And Agnitia, turning to you, I'm interested in hearing what element of the proposal you think is essential. So where do you see a real priority, something that you're absolutely hoping will be in the final law that passes?
3: It is very difficult to pick up on just one point of the proposal. So I would say that firstly, it is crucial that the Commission is recognizing the importance of science with regards to the impact of air pollution and that the proposal is bringing forward new, stricter and more ambitious standards of air quality. However, as Client Earth, we would like to call for the full alignment of the limit values with WHO guidelines from 2020 by 2030. Secondly, I would say it is crucial to close loopholes in the legal framework for air quality plans and the related sanctions regime. In order to ensure public authorities take early and appropriate and effective measures to comply with air quality standards. And thirdly, as we discussed before, I think that maintaining and strengthening the proposed provisions for access to justice and compensation is crucial. Making sure that citizens and civil society have access to courts. Is vital to proper functioning of the legislation Agnieszka, Margarita thank you very much for
0: joining us today and for this interview
3: thank you very much it was pleasure thank you thank you very much indeed
0: okay Aaron so that was quite an interesting discussion what is your takeaway
1: Well, I think one interesting aspect is how important science and law are to this framework. So, we learned that the World Health Organization has set science-based standards for what air pollution levels should be. We also learned that science actually has not determined that there's any safe level of air pollution. But the World Health Organization came to some sort of idea of what that limit should be. And how important these legal instruments are to then codifying these limits and making them enforceable.
0: What I find quite interesting is the aspects of how impacts of air pollution are perceived as direct or indirect. So on one hand, I think that for a lot of citizens, the impacts of air pollution are felt much more directly than, let's say, impacts of climate change, because you can have an app in your phone that will flash with bright red light and tell you that In your village, in your town, the air quality levels are below standard and the air pollution levels are exceeded. So you kind of know that you're being directly impacted by that. But what we heard from Agnieszka is that often the courts would argue, you know, you are not directly impacted because you cannot really prove that your body, you know, your concrete body is being impacted by that. And therefore... You cannot fight for your rights in the court. And I think in this context, what is interesting is to also understand, we talked about this figure of 300,000 premature deaths. And actually, it's interesting to understand methodology behind that. So it's not that anybody would have on their death certificate written, you know, this person died prematurely because of air pollution, but rather towns of similar demographic characteristics with different levels of air pollution are being compared to model those differences. So it's more like an estimate and therefore this perception of whether it's a direct or indirect impact is covered there.
1: Yeah. And we didn't get really into the economics of it, but uh, it was mentioned, you know, the billions of euros in costs that are represented and and those estimations also, you know, being an environmental economist, uh, those are also then connected to that modeling, right? So there's estimates about what is the value of a life and there's modeling results that are about how many you know, premature deaths are there, therefore how many lost life years and what's the value of those. That's another very, very interesting discussion and, and all of that lies behind those number estimates in terms of the, the economic impact of air pollution, which is one of the really costly environmental problems that we have today. One of the other things that struck me in the interview was some of the words that came out, some of the sources of of air pollution are solid fuels, coal and wood. It's interesting in environmental policy how wide the technological ranges that we cover. I mean, we're also doing work on solar energy and electric vehicles, uh, artificial intelligence, like all these really cutting edge technologies. But in environmental policy, we're still working on things like wood burning as Mm -hmm. a source of particulate matter. So, it's just a huge range there. Margarita says that nature does not have a voice in the debate. And I thought that was just a a really interesting way of putting it. And then it also points at this name of Agnieszka's organization, Client Earth, Mm -hmm. right? Which is basically an effort to give nature... That voice. The a legal representation a, as well. Yeah. You know, that they're the yeah.
0: lawyers fighting for the planet.
1: Yeah, I thought that was interesting.
0: Absolutely, yes. And what I found super interesting in this interview specifically is that we talked quite a lot about how citizens directly can fight for their right to live in a cleaner environment and also affect the decisions being made in the European Union. So, of course, Agnieszka talked at length about the court cases that were... Mm-hmm fought by client Earth but brought forward by citizens. But also Margarita mentioned something interesting which is how the legislative process looks like and how she urges citizens to you know talk to understand who is their MEP mm-hmm. and reach out to them and say, look there is this law right now being discussed in the European Parliament and this is how I believe as you as my representative should be voting,
1: yeah, so it's fun to do stories about things that are, are in development and hopefully maybe a few of our listeners take it upon themselves to actually raise their voice in these uh, discussions and contexts and, and hopefully yeah, uh, move policy in a good direction.
0: So Aaron, before we go, we're doing this webinar series for young people across Europe. Yeah, sure. And recently I spoke to one of our participants. She attended the webinar we did on Farm to Fork. Her name is Johanna Norris, and I asked her what she learned in the webinar, and also what her message was to European policymakers regarding the transformation of food systems. She agreed we could record the conversation, and I wanted to share a few highlights. Oh, great. Let's hear it. Hi, Johanna, and welcome to the Green Deal, Big Deal podcast. Pleasure to have you here. Could you please tell us who you are and what you do?
4: I work four days a week for a company called Regional We're based in Freiburg in Germany. And the company that I work for, we do sustainability assessments for farms with a major focus on creating financial valuations of practices that contribute to ecology and society and the regional economy. Um, our aim is to kind of make more visible the different practices that farmers do that contribute to these dimensions and also give them a, a price tag because that doesn't exist yet.
0: So you have mentioned you have recently attended one of our webinars on farm to fork strategy, and I wanted to ask you what made you join the session?
4: Well, I wanted to know more about the Green Deal through work. I've had a bit of contact with it through. We had a look at the EU taxonomy because obviously we look at how farmers can in future be financed for services they do that contribute to sustainability. But also for personal reasons, just to understand more about what's happening on the EU policy level, what kind of discussions are being had there, how widely thought out the different strategies are. I do find it quite complex if you're just trawling through the internet and finding lots of different documents. But I think something like a webinar or um, an event, really hearing from people who are working on these topics, that really gives much deeper insights than, I don't know, like five hours on the internet trying to read different documents. So, um, yeah, and I think also the the fact that you directed it towards young people, that also interested me to see what other people are active in different countries in the EU. And what would you say was your takeaway from the webinar? Something which was interesting for me is that the Green Deal is largely posed as a carbon mitigation plan. The big focus is on neutrality, whereas the farm to fork seems a little bit more
0: holistic. You are active professionally in the space of sustainable food systems and also you have a strong private interest in the topic and I wanted to ask you what is your vision, what is your message to the European policymakers?
4: The reason I took part in the webinar is because I would like to see the interests or the voice of young people come to the forefront a bit more and I mean there's some quite shocking statistics about the percentage of farmers who are below the age of 40 in the EU. I think it's something like 10%. And considering that, yeah, our food depends on farming, I would like to see EU policymakers have make a much stronger move towards training and providing opportunities for young people to get involved in farming. I think just generally the occupation of farming is not seen as attractive, even though there's so much dignity that can be won from it. Without farmers, we don't have food, we don't have fiber. This is such an essential point that I think we often forget, especially since so many of us are living in cities. Thank you very much for joining us today. And we hope to
0: see you in the future at our webinars.
4: Yes, thank you so much for organizing this series. It's really giving a nice, clear description of the different aspects of the Green Deal.
0: We also welcome you to join our webinar series. You can learn more about it and sign up for upcoming webinars on our website, greendealbigdeal.eu. To be notified about upcoming webinars and podcast episodes, you can follow our Instagram channel at greendealbigdeal.
1: You can find other episodes of this podcast on all major podcast platforms and apps, including Spotify, Apple, and Deezer, as well as on YouTube. Please subscribe to the podcast to find the new episodes in your feed. This podcast is part of the European Environment Initiative funded by the Federal Ministry for the Environment, Nature Conservation, Nuclear Safety and Consumer Protection. The ministry supports this initiative on the basis of a decision adopted by the German Bundestag.
0: The podcast is produced by Kera Mazetti, Eva Ivashuk and Aaron Best. Sound design by Lena Ebley. Graphic and web design by Jennifer Rann. Special thanks to Anna Hentzah-Hentschel, Liliana Sala, Nora Kugel, Camilla Bausch and Michael Lorenz.